The COVID-19 pandemic has infected more than 10 million Americans and claimed the precious lives of more than 200,000 Americans. Even if you were never sick, you may know someone who has had it. And your life was definitely impacted by the decisions policymakers made in response to the virus. We speak today with Dr. Jay Richards on the continuing COVID-19 pandemic and the impact of our public responses. Jay is an associate research professor in the School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America, executive editor of The Stream, and a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, where he works with the Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality. We speak with Jay on his most recent book, The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. I'm Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. I'm Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law, coming to you from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Jay Richards and Noah Brandt. Dr. Richards, how are you doing? Great, Tom. Thanks so much. Such a pleasure to speak with you, and also you, Noah. It's going to be exciting, Tom. I mean, this is this is the issue of the year, and uh, Dr. Richards uh, has a lot to say about it, so I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, so Jay, if we could just start out by talking about your work at the Discovery Institute and with the Catholic University of America. Oh, absolutely. So I've been, I think I'm in my seventh year at Catholic University and here in DC. And I've actually been affiliated with Discovery Institute since 1998. I, now that I'm realizing that has been a really long time. Um, I'm uh, Honestly, I'm a shameless generalist. My background is, is primarily philosophy, uh, but I'm really interested in what you might call academically boundary issues between different disciplines. And so especially the intersection of ethics and economics. And that's where I, I really spend most of my time, but I have written books that, that deal with the sort of intersection of uh, philosophy and, and and natural science. And so um, you could call me a shameless generalist or maybe a dilettante, depending <laughs> upon your views of, uh, you know, the estimate of my views. Um, and this, you know, the reality is I certainly a year ago didn't think I would be working on a book on the pandemic, needless to say. In fact, at Catholic University, I've been working full-time helping build a new business degree um, in Tucson, Arizona, a, lo- a lower income business degree that's about a half the tuition price for the uh, on campus. And so wow. I'm, re- I'm really deep down in that. But of course, we had this, the lockdowns happened in, in March uh, and ended up with all of my out-of-town trips canceled. And all, my commute ceased to exist. Um, so, you know, I had extra time on my hands. And uh, William Briggs is a statistician and Doug Axe is a biologist, my co-authors. I happen to know both of them. And we noticed that we were all having similar misgivings about what was happening. Not, you know, skepticism about the existence of the virus or anything like that, obviously, but just a worry uh, that because we weren't really dealing with solid data, um, that we might end up essentially having a social panic that would lead to a policy response that could do as much or even more harm as the virus itself. And so we you know, got more and more convinced that something like that was going to happen, thought, well, we can't stop this from happening, but maybe 
maybe we can write a book under a tight deadline that will uh, prevent us from at least making the same mistake again in 2021. So Regnery Publishers is really the only publisher I know that could possibly turn around a book this quickly, but they, they agreed to take the project on. So we had a very intense three months, needless to say, working on this book because we had to turn it in in June and then do revisions during the summer. But honestly, Tom, we thought that in October, this would be a kind of after action report. We would not still be talking about lockdowns. We just thought, okay, it would be uh, what happened, essentially. We didn't realize that the lockdowns, we'd still be doing them here now in November. Yeah, you know, it's incredible. I think first, Jay, you know, most people, it's like, okay, I don't have a commute anymore. I got some extra free time. I think most of us spend that time like watching a little bit more Netflix or something. I love you. Just, <laughs> I'm going to crank out a book. No problem. <laughs> the timeliness of it too, right? It's like so many books like this end up getting put out uh, years later. And the fact that you're still in the thick of it, unfortunately, for the reason that you mentioned, which is the pandemic is still ongoing. Uh, but the fact that, that you've got this out with such speed and that it has such relevancy is important. I think it's important to pick up now. Yeah, I mean, that's what we were, we just realized that that we could keep doing this over and over again. Um, the, the cost, of course, was that we had to do it quickly. And also, there's some things we don't know. Like, we're not going to know what the excess deaths are, you know, one statistical thing for 2020 until the end of 2020. Um, and so, we the book is a mix of every, focusing on and analyzing everything we know now um, and then trying to make accurate predictions about what we think is going to happen. Um, so, the, you know, we make, we make some risky predictions, obviously, in the book. We were worried because it's jam-packed with uh, statistics and, and biology and economics, actually, that we'd make some really embarrassing error. Um, if we've made an embarrassing error, no one has caught it yet, but certainly we'll be the first ones to tell people if we, if we find something. Jay, you know, you've written a lot of books, right? You, you've written an impressive amount of them. You've worked in these documentaries. What, what Was it different writing in such a, sh a short time period and writing about something that as you were doing it was just like happening all around you and impacting your daily life to such an intense degree? It really was because usually, um, I mean, books that I've written in the past are usually things that I've thought about for years. So sometimes, honestly, I have a book called The Human Advantage. I fiddled around with a proposal on that book for a couple or three years, and it went through different versions. Three years, um, not three months, right? No, three years <laughs> fiddling that with messing around with the proposal. Yeah, and everybody, authors know that at least trade press books, there's usually a year-long turnaround from the time you turn in the manuscript until it's actually published. Well, we had a very uh, uh, <laughs> shrunk uh, both the writing period, but you know the proposal itself. Um, you know, we had to write in a few days, and I can say that we benefited from the technologies such as, you know, of course we use Google Docs because my co-author William Briggs he was in Taiwan for the entire time that we were writing the book. He got Incredible. stranded in Taiwan. Uh, Doug Axe is in the Los Angeles area, and of course I'm here in D.C. Hardly left the house. Um, but we had Google Docs so we could work on the manuscript simultaneously. And the nice thing is that, you know, if you have access to PubMed and things like that, I mean, for a researcher, um, just as long as you're online, you can find almost everything that you absolutely need to find. Um, but it did present challenges. And at the, once it was done, I promised myself and my family that I would never do this again. But we did manage <laughs> to pull it off this one time. <laughs> Well, big shout out to Google for making that possible, too. Yeah. I guess. So, Jay, you know, the title says so much, right? The price of panic, how the tyranny mm. of experts turned a pandemic into a catastrophe. I think I sort of know what your thesis is there, but help uh, help us unpack that a little bit. Um, you know, the title is provocative. You know, what inspired you to write the book and, and what is the core takeaway you want for people to understand? 
Well, the core takeaway is essentially that if you actually look at the data, um, government-imposed lockdowns in which you lock down entire populations, uh, the sick, the well, the at-risk, the, the low-risk, um, end up doing very severe damage, both to human well-being and to human life. And that there was no evidence ahead of time that population-wide lockdowns help to prevent a, a pandemic. In fact, the World Health Organization a year ago, October of 2019, did a major meta-analysis of all the research and said there's just really no evidence that a, a lockdown would make any difference. Um, that's where we started. We did the lockdowns anyway. Almost every country in the world did some version of the lockdowns. That gave us a whole lot of data, which is ghoulish to say, but you know, with 50 different states in the US, we got a lot of data about what actually happened. And having analyzed it, we're quite convinced that the lockdowns made no discernible difference in either the case spreads or hospitalizations or death spread. If you actually compare a large number of states and countries, that's the conclusion that you clearly come to. And so that's why we call the book The Price of Panic, because then what we're dealing with is any response is going to have a cost and a benefit. So if I have a headache, um, I could decide, okay, I'm going to take some Tylenol, which has a very low cost. It, it doesn't cost much in money, and it never hurts me if I take Tylenol. Uh, it also doesn't really work very well. Or I could take Advil, right? And that's uh, maybe hurts my <laughs> stomach. It's going to work a little better. Um, or I could cut my head off and that would solve the problem. <laughs> I would not have a headache anymore, right? And so that's, you know, th that's the what we do this constantly when we're making decisions. You want to maximize the cost and minimize or, or maximize the benefits and minimize the costs. You don't want a public health response that does as much or more damage as the thing that you're trying to fix. What we hoped when we started working on the book is that we would find we were quite certain that the lockdowns are probably not going to make much difference based on sort of preliminary data. We were hoping to find that the lockdowns did something good so that there would be, okay, it's, there was a lot of pain, but there's some gain. But when we, we really we ran the analysis, it doesn't look like the government imposed lockdowns made any discernible difference. And so you're really talking about, okay, so what's the price of the lockdowns in terms of dollars and health uh, and disease and well-being? And that's, you know, there's we have one long chapter in the book in which we just try our best to tabulate roughly what the cost is. And it's, it was really quite staggering. Jay, what do you think that, you know, at the end of this, right? And, and we're not at the end. We're mm -hmm. talking in November 2020. We're not at the end. We'll talk more about that. But what do you think will be the total cost in dollars, lives, livelihoods of the response from governments? Uh, it seems like you're pretty negative on it. And like, how, mm -hmm. how will history look back on the cost? I think history will look back on this episode as the greatest social contagion in history and one of the wow. one of the greatest public health um, policy catastrophes in history if not, it's almost certainly the greatest um, it's hard to say globally what the cost will be total but so what we try to do is to sort of estimate what we could tell at that point I mean I start if you're going to talk about global cost just focusing on on uh, the World Health Organization which is the public health arm of the UN. Well, the UN's food program projected that just the extreme poverty and starvation as a result of the, the lockdown, so the disruption in the global uh, food supply chain, the, that arm of the UN predicted that from and just in 2020, it could plunge as many as two, about 420 million more people into extreme poverty. So oh a yeah, billion people re got out of absolute poverty since 1990. 
almost half of those may drop back into extreme poverty uh, in 2020 as a result of just destroying the supply chains on food, honestly. Uh, the same UN food Pro World Food Program, they, they projected, again, as a model projection, something like 300,000 deaths of starvation per day globally. So we're talking tens of millions of deaths from starvation. Now, I think they're probably overestimating that UN tends to do that, but let's just say it's just... 30,000 deaths a day. Well, you add up very quickly. You kill more people just from disrupting supply chains than are killed or even attributed deaths on the coronavirus. If you just look domestically, we estimate uh, it's the, the lockdowns cost the economy about a trillion dollars every single month. So we're already several trillion dollars in the hole. We all know that there are about 41 million new jobless claims as of May. Um, we think at least 75,000 excess deaths of despair in 2020 in the U.S. So in other words, alcohol addiction or overdose, drug overdose and suicides. That's 75,000 excess deaths of despair above what you would otherwise expected. Um, one early study actually in May estimated that there'll be uh, just the delays in treatment and diagnosis. Um, you could have about 80,000 just missed cancer screenings. That's 80,000 just for cancer screenings in the U.S. And now you have mm. stroke and heart disease. You can see just you start adding these numbers up and very quickly the lockdowns themselves end up costing as many lives as are attributed to the coronavirus. Now, of course, the other side of the coin is people will say, well, but if we had not locked down, then wouldn't two million people? Wouldn't it have been two point two million, right? Rather than just two, just two hundred thousand, uh, and so that's really the, the the main sort of point of the book is to to weigh that, right? Because the claim is okay, yeah, maybe the lockdowns cost two hundred thousand lives, uh, but we have only two hundred thousand coronavirus deaths, and we would have had two point two million. So you still net saving hundreds of thousands of lives. The problem is, is there is absolutely no reason to believe that that's true. That 2.2 million deaths number was based on the Imperial College London model that uh, everybody heard about in late March that almost immediately fell apart. There's absolutely no reason to think that its projections were accurate. And so it's just a classic example in which you act on very bad information early on and you respond in a kind of essentially a panicked way. And so your response ends up doing far more damage than the thing that you're trying to that you're trying to, to mitigate. No, I think that's exactly right. And you know, people look to their political and policy leaders and they want to trust, right? We all want to trust that the people mm -hmm. in charge are competent, right? I mean, I think whatever your political yeah. leanings, some people feel that uh, the Republicans are not, some people feel the Democrats are not. Everybody kind of finds a reason to be unhappy if they want to. But when we look at especially mm -hmm. the international leaders, you mentioned the UN, the World Health Organization, <laughs> competency, uh, let alone consistency, does not seem to be the hallmark of this year with them. And you mentioned the Imperial College model. I want to read uh, for a minute from yeah. your book. Uh, you write that the World Health Organization favored a single, untested, apocalyptic model from the Imperial College London. The United States government, you write, took its cues from the Institute for Health, Metrics, and Evaluation at the University of Washington. We now know, you say, these models were so wrong, they were like shots in the dark. After a few months, even the press admitted as much, but by then vast damage had been done, you say. So, I mean, Jay, I think so many of us who've been paying attention see that by this point, but how do we put this in the context that not only did this not work, these models did not take us where we thought they should or where we wanted to go, 
but it seems as if people are taking exactly the wrong lessons from all this, right? They're saying, you know what we need? Uh, maybe yeah. to establish firmer lockdowns. Maybe that'll do it. Yeah. Well, and you got, people have to think about the natural incentives for both the public health bureaucracies and for politicians. Anybody that studies public choice economics knows that uh, politicians have particular incentives, and they never have an incentive to admit, admit that they made a terrible mistake. Now, President Trump did, I think, a good job of pivoting. He was just going on the advice he got in March. He said in April, two point two, he said two very smart people came into my office and said 2.2 million people will die unless we shut the whole country down. Um, within a few months, though, he realized, okay, that's th these lockdowns can't just go on forever. Um, nevertheless, if you're a public health uh, official in the government, your incentive is always going to be to go for the most catastrophic. And so, you know, if your job is to say, well, this isn't going to be a problem. Only 100 people are going to die, and then a million people die. Well, that's a disaster. But if you say a million people will die unless we do this drastic thing, and then we do the drastic thing, and 100,000 people die, well, you could say, well, thank, thank God, we saved 900,000 lives, right? And so that's, that's just the natural incentives in public health, unfortunately. And that was what struck us. It's not that, oh, there was an evil cabal of people that wanted everyone to die. That's not the point at all. The point is that the public health bureaucracies that have that have emerged over the last few decades, the World Health Organization in particular, which is a part of the UN, and then the public health bureaucracies in every major country, they have a particular set of incentives, but they don't necessarily speak for cutting edge science. This is what the media is utterly naive on this point. So they think, well, Dr. Anthony Fauci, he's the leading disease expert in the country. Well, no, he's not. Um, being uh, Working for the federal government as a public health official is not the gold medal of scientific intelligence. That's not how it works, right? It's not a Nobel Prize. It just means that that's your job, is that you work for the government doing this. Right from the beginning, there were very smart relevantly credentialed scientists at Stanford, at Harvard, and Yale, and uh, and Oxford, all around the country, all around the world that said lockdowns are a disaster. Uh, we're, we're way overshooting the infection fatality rate of this bug. But unfortunately, these were independent scientists, and some of them actually are getting censored by the social media giants because they weren't public health officials. And that's, I think, that's the problem. This idea that if you're a public health official, you somehow have uh, a, a status of infallible oracle to speak on behalf of science. And if if political leaders and the media all act that way, I, we're never going to avoid another. We'll we'll always be ending up with these kind of catastrophes because our our political leaders won't actually be getting an accurate. Uh, summary of what the science says. They'll just be getting an accurate summary of what the public health officials that work for the government tell you. That's so right. I think of, uh, you know, it's the irony, right, of, you know, Silicon Valley and American capitalist dynamism <laughs> comes from the kind of the Apple mantra, right, of think different, you know, dare to be different, dare to think boldly. Yeah. And yet then when it think comes to- Think the same to, or else, Tom, think the same or yeah, else. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's well, right. exactly. Yeah. Well, when it comes to this moment, we're in this place where you're right. Anybody who disagrees from what we're told in any given moment is the consensus uh, is censored or their content is flagged or it's depopulated in the algorithms. And you think, mm -hmm. what is a consensus? A consensus, you know, is, is a majority of, of thought on a particular issue, but it can be wrong all the time. 
You know, I mean, we look at no, that in the most absolutely. recent polling data for the American presidency. The consensus was <laughs> yes. wrong. No, and it's ex the polling data is a perfect example of these statistical models that are treated as if they're data. They're not data. They they might have some data, you know, that gets plugged into them, but statistical models are based on assumptions that get plugged in. And models just tell you what you told them to say. They can't tell you anything else. Um, and so unless the, the assumptions, the so-called propositions that you plug in, are already square with the evidence from nature, then there's no reason to trust them. But unfortunately, the media don't understand this. They think somebody produces a model, they, they treat it as if it's evidence. And of course, the modelers want to treat it as evidence too, because that uh, is beneficial to them. But the, the, this use of statistical modeling to govern public major public policy decisions when the models have not even been tested against the evidence, it is just utterly absurd and it's going to lead to catastrophe again and again and again unless we can get some space between these untested statistical models and and public policy decisions you know jay spring of 2020 when i think about it seems like 10 years ago to me in a lot of ways and it seems it's sort of <laughs> surreal like a movie that i, I lived through but yep. there were a lot of things we heard then right Fr from these from mm -hmm. the the scientists from the government from people that we should trust and uh we hope knew what they were doing. And, and two things that stick out to me were flatten the curve and, mm -hmm. you know, 15 days to slow the spread, right? Like yep. everybody stay inside for two weeks. Uh, we'll get through this right now. And, and that was, uh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And then that will mm -hmm. flatten the curve of infections and we can, uh, we can beat this thing and get back to where we were. And so w what do you make of those two statements? And, you know, why don't we definitely, I don't think we hear about either of them anymore. Why is that? No, well, you can't because of course, as you said, the 15 days to flatten the curve, um, you know, or it was, I think the White House called it the 15 days, yeah, to slow the spread. It's the same thing. Essentially, the idea was that um, there's the general epidemiological view is that, look, you can't prevent this virus from getting out in the population. You might be able to slow it down a little bit uh, so as to reduce the number of people that are hitting the healthcare system all at once. So that was the idea is you have this very spiky curve that goes way up above um, the healthcare capacity of a country. And so then you end up with not only people that are sick of COVID, but then people, excess people that die because they couldn't get a hospital bed or a ventilator or something like that. So the idea was you're going to still have the same number of people that are going to get it. This, it's the same area under both curves. It's just that you flatten the curve and spread it out over maybe a period of weeks rather than three days. But notice the assumption is that you can't ultimately prevent it from spreading. We're just going to slow it down slightly. And the, and so that, but notice that that disappeared after two weeks. And so even if you sort of grant, okay, well, that argument sort of makes sense. Now, it'd be good to know if the measures actually are able to do that, right? That was something that everyone was right. assuming and hadn't actually proved. But let's just, let's say it would. Um, after two weeks, it should have stopped because it was quite clear that except for a couple of places in New York and New Jersey that did get the, the healthcare systems, they got pressured. Now, it actually never, they never outstripped their capacity. The Javits Center hospital beds and the Navy ship uh, hospital beds, none of them were ever used. And that's because even in, in when the they were In the worst part hits of the country, right? In the... Yeah, the very worst parts of the country. And so immediately the premise of the argument had been s settled, right? And so we should have said, okay, now let's um, let people use their best judgment, make estimations based upon their own risks and what they can do, and and then get back to normal. But we didn't do that. It immediately shifted from 15 days to flatten the curve to we'll just stay locked down until we get rid of the bug, essentially. And so that went on for several months, except that, of course, we had these permitted 
protests and riots all summer, which were accepted for some reason. Um, and then at some point, the, I think the argument changed, well, we're going to stay in this this state of semi-lockdowns or going back and forth until we get a, a, a vaccine. So right, that the vaccine right. has been held out as the sort of carrot out there uh, to keep us all um, uh, essentially uh, appeased until, and so we're going to kind of stay locked down or whatever it is we're doing in different states uh, until a vaccine comes along. And so the argument changed about three or four times. The one thing that never happened is that public health officials just said, okay, for most most part, okay, lockdowns are a disaster. Let's stop doing that. So I think, you know, one of the things that we need to look at is what other countries have done. And your point there is well taken, which is that lockdowns are not the only solution so what are some of the alternatives to shutdowns that, that maybe would have mitigated the worst impacts of the virus or might still play a role in the future? Well, certainly, I mean, the funny thing is even in the U.S., we had different responses. And so um, famously, Oklahoma and more famously, South Dakota didn't have lockdowns at all. Now, you could say, especially South Dakota, there are not a lot of folks there and they're really spread out, right? So that's why I think looking at Florida is probably a better example. You've got a lot of people that are high risk. But Governor DeSantis, he talked to scientists in Europe and said, okay, now what? tell me about this virus. They said, well, uh, elderly people with comorbidities, especially in nursing homes, are at very high risk, and kids in schools are not. And so he responded according to the data. And I think that the Florida response was that probably about as, 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 as good as it's going to get. Sweden, I think, with one exception, did exactly the right thing. They understood from the beginning that they're not going to be able to literally bureaucratically control this bug. What they did not do is they did not focus uh, protection on nursing homes. There are a lot of nursing homes in Sweden. And if you look at the deaths that happened there, that's where almost all of them happened. They figured that out after a couple of months. But I think Sweden, they still come out looking very good if you compare them not just to Norway, which is everybody wants you to do, but compare them to Belgium, uh, which has had draconian lockdowns and it was a catastrophe, or Italy, draconian lockdowns and a catastrophe, or the UK. And so I think... The, the Swedish model with the addition of focusing on, on those people that are very high risk. And so do put all of your effort and protection into them, that, that that would be the way to go. And and now we've got, that's what's weird is now we've got the data. I mean, Sweden's back to normal. Um, and, but the, the, the American media, at least, they just don't, they, they don't want people to know that. And so I'm, I'm amazed at how few Americans really even realize what's happening in the rest of the world, or even realize that say Japan and, Taiwan never really had lockdowns and are doing fine. I wouldn't say we, if we had done what they did, that'd be okay because I suspect that East Asia had uh, more of an immunity to it. And so Vietnam and Taiwan and Japan, they had very few deaths. They had no lockdowns, but I also think that for some or another reason, it just seemed to be less deadly to them. In Sweden, Jay, because this is something that we've heard the back and forth between the pro and anti-lockdown people talk about, and it seems like you know we're speaking with different sets of facts uh, that the pro-lockdown people say, no, it's been a catastrophe in Sweden. The death mm-hmm. rate has been so much higher than their peer, uh, you know, countries around them that had much low that did lockdown and have lower lower death rates. Uh, what's your response to that? Yeah, it, it, that's true if you just compare it to your preferred cherry pick data set, right? And so the, the, the data set is almost always, I mean, I'm, I'm sure everyone listening remembers, okay, who did the media compare Sweden to? Norway, right? Because you think, oh, that's basically the same country. They're not actually. Swedes got a lot more people and they're not as spread out. But in our minds, that's the same place. So it's like a control group, right? And Norway locked down. Sweden didn't. 
more per capita deaths in Sweden. Um, though that is an extremely facile way of thinking. That's not how you do statistics. You need to compare lots of countries. And so when you do that, that's why I said you could just, you could make exactly the opposite point just from comparing Belgium. If you look on a map, Belgium is really close <laughs> to Sweden and to Norway. They're basically the right. same part of the world. Belgium had draconian lockdowns. They have a population that's more or less like Sweden's and they had terrible per per capita deaths. Um, the other thing is that Sweden, even if you just count per capita deaths, right, they're much, actually better not only, as I mentioned, that, that, than, um, than Belgium, but it's several other European countries like Italy, and I think actually the UK is actually worse off. And they didn't suffer the catastrophic effects of the lockdowns. That's the thing. You have to compare both costs because if you have lockdowns that kill a lot of people, then saying, well, we had fewer people die of COVID-19, that's only half the argument. And so the other thing is that it's likely that um, Sweden is much closer to herd immunity now. That is, the, the, the healthy part of its population is probably much farther along in terms of being immune. And that means that everybody's going to be safer. And so it may be that the lockdowns in some places are just kind of either they don't do anything or they just kind of drag out the inevitable and then add on all these extra costs. That's why we thought from the beginning, the argument should never have been, oh, it's just dollars on one side and lives on the other. That has never been the argument. It's always, lives are always at risk, whatever you do. And so what you want to do is the policy that will, um, you know, save the, the, the largest net number of lives without destroying everything else. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it, thinking about destroying everything else before when we were offline, we were talking about school closures and, you know, you have a unique perspective because you're an educator and uh, you've also written this book all, all about the, the pandemic. So, I mean, looking back on school closures, what are we to, to make of them? And uh, how would you advise politicians and school board members and parents as we move forward if uh, their school is talking about closing again? There, at least with respect to the, the well-being of the kids, there is absolutely no case to be made for shutting down schools. I mean, we're already getting data, but they just trust your common sense here is that sixth graders do not do well sitting in front of a computer, right? I mean, I would have been a complete catastrophe. I mean, I was a fidgety kid, I, you know, and so it just, I would have gotten nothing done. Um, but the reality is if you just look at the CDC numbers, kids are at that age, say school age, are several times, depending on you look at it, five or 10 times more likely to die of the flu than COVID-19. It's like a one in a million danger to them. And so it, they're far more risk driving to school probably than, than being in school. Now you might say, well, what about teachers? Well, that, you know, the reality is that I think school districts, they ha would have to make some kinds of adjustments for elderly and infirm teachers, but that's a different policy, right? That's not shutting the whole school down. Yeah, that's making right. except, you know, coming up with solutions for that situation. M much less uh, and, of a blunt instrument making those type of policies. Much less of a blunt instrument. It makes absolutely no sense. Um, and so in, you you know, in Washington, D.C., Catholic U, we're doing as much as we can, which involves, okay, letting the freshmen be on campus and do this kind of hybrid thing. But it's a mess. And frankly, college kids, even though they don't like it, handle it a heck of a lot better than younger kids. And so I just think it's one of the greatest outrages of this is that we have shut schools down. Um, and even Europe in countries where the lockdowns are pretty severe have figured out that it doesn't make any sense to lock up schools. You know, I saw a thing earlier today, we've seen a lot this year in terms of uh, literally the redefinition of words, uh, the changing of the definitions mm -hmm. in popular media, uh, sometimes in response to political moments. And you know, one I just saw the, this morning was uh, th that uh, at least one dictionary, I think it was Merriam-Webster, has updated its definition wow. of bigot. 
uh, where yes. bigot used to mean, you know, uh, intolerance toward uh, another's views. It now has been redefined to say uh, basically an unreasonable opinion held about another mm-hmm. person or group. And of course, that begs the question, who decides what is reasonable or not, right? Uh, but in any event, you know, one of the things I want to point out here with this is something I've heard um, over the course of the year that there's sort of no distinction made between rules and guidelines, uh, you know, in terms of the public right. health crisis or political responses. So we hear again and again, for instance, you know, criticisms that, you know, people, for instance, who choose to be outside without a mask, you know, it doesn't matter if they're alone in the middle of a field, you know, we've seen video yeah. of people being arrested in the UK or Australia, sometimes in their homes uh, for, for violating what are supposedly guidelines. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, you know, a guideline is, is conditional guidance, right? Uh, so you think about like running yeah. a race, a guideline would be, you know, maybe stretch after a run. It's general advice. Yeah. It doesn't mean that every runner to successfully run a race has to stretch precisely, you know, a few moments after finishing the run. But a rule would be like, you know, when the pistol goes off, start the race. Uh, if you violate mm-hmm. that rule, then you're not running the race properly, right? Does it matter that these terms have been thrown around so loosely, or am I just being nitpicky here on this, Jay? No, it's certainly, that's part of it. And the problem is, is like, let's just take the instance of the masks. All of us remember that initially we were told we shouldn't wear masks. It was a weird kind of messaging, um, is that we were told masks won't help you. And if you buy them up, there won't be any for the healthcare workers who need them, which right. is a very strange message. Right? It's like, well, why do they need them if it doesn't work? Now, what they should have said is that, well, there's so many ifs with respect to masks and mask respirators. You don't wear them properly. Um, they can end up not doing any good. There's even they could do more harm than good. And so uh, and there's no data that widespread populations wearing masks makes much difference. OK, but in a clinical setting, that it's different. You know, they could have said that. But they, so but they treated us like idiots, essentially. And so we all got suspicious. And so it went from don't wear masks to you should wear masks to now. And I think it in some places with guideline to then actual rules. Like in Washington, D.C., it was these draconian laws uh, if you weren't seen with a mask. But of course, there's no rule about what co- the, a mask is made of or what it is. It's basically a thing covering your face, which is just silly because obviously a meshy piece of fabric is not the same thing as an N95 respirator that's fitted to your face. Um, and so the preference has, has been overwhelmingly, at least in the United States, in most places has been for um, very strict kind of draconian rules and lockdowns as opposed to, look, I think that government has, absolutely has a role to play, especially in public health advisories. Uh, but we think that the evidence suggests that whatever value there was in the social distancing, it happened in March in the U.S. voluntarily. So people always, look, we all have local knowledge about our own situation and what our own health situation is. And if you're told, okay, there's a potentially deadly respiratory virus around, you're going to act differently. And the, what happened, though, is that governments felt like, no, they have to actually impose this and shut businesses and schools down. Um, and that's where we think the damage was. It's different when you're having a sort of organic, well-informed resp- public response is one thing, but a top-down imposed response, uh, it's just a different sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it also corrodes public trust in the sense that I know in Washington, D.C., the mayor has established you know, uh, fines, right? Uh, c- c- civil penalties for failure to comply with what we're told are just simply guidelines. It's like a thousand dollars or something, hypothetically, if you're outside in public without a mask. The problem with that is, you know, who's enforcing that? The police already have their hands full. 
I would be surprised if anyone's been fined for that. Uh, and we wonder, you know, uh, what that's going to do when the government tries to impose uh, what we would say are definitely necessary, um, you know, guidelines or or policies. People aren't going to trust them if they've seen, oh, there's a precedent that these sort of rules supposedly are thrown out, but nobody really cares. Uh, it's just a bad situation to be in. It is. And I actually think that's one of the costs. I mean, there's a cost just in terms of the uh, restrictions on our freedom, but there's also the cost, you might call it the boy who's who cried wolf cost. And so if the government does this kind of thing, and then we find out later, oh, wait, this virus actually wasn't, I mean, yeah, it, it makes you can make you sick, but for most people, it's not really dangerous. Um, well, what happens if next year there's something that really is catastrophic? Um, people are going to be, le- I would think, less inclined to trust the, right. the authorities. And that's, so that's why you don't want to appeal to sort of extreme responses to things like this, because when you actually need to do that, when you need to exercise your emergency powers, uh, you're less likely to, to have compliance. Now, Jay, there's been a lot of talk about Facebook and Twitter, all these other social media mm. companies, you know, and their power to censor and mm. manipulate or even hide content. Have you experienced any censorship or other free speech manipulation as you've been writing and speaking about these contentious issues? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had actually a, an interview, a really kind of high production value podcast interview with Bill Walton called The Bill Walton Show. It went up the day the book came out uh, and his podcast is hosted on YouTube uh, and they pulled it uh, within about 36 hours, weirdly. Wow. Now, I, uh, I can honestly say that it probably led to more publicity as a result because, of course, <laughs> there are other platforms, but they moved it to Vimeo and Vimeo pulled it too. Uh, and it was oh based on, well, the, yeah, and they have a policy against um, things that claim public health uh, crises are hoaxes or that encourage self-harm. Okay, well, I'm, <laughs> I don't encourage self-harm. I don't claim it's a hoax. So, of course, it didn't apply. It looked like a kind of one of these gerrymandered sort of retroactive rules you set up in order you can start to ding people that you want to. Now, just actually while we're talking, I had an email pop up that the producer said YouTube has now returned it. Uh, after three weeks, they they have let it go back up. Oh wow! So, I guess he won the appeal process, whatever that is. <laughs> the overlord. Yes, exactly. A, week, a month later here, and so it goes back up. Um, but I mean, I can tell you, a lot of our book is about the role of social media because um, the reality is, we've I've talked about you know public health officials and that sort of problem, but I really have gotten my, my views on social media, I would say have gotten much, much darker as, as a, a result of working on this book. I mean, I think they exercise almost unlimited power. I mean, all of the media companies are essentially beholden uh, to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. They have an incredible amount of power. And so the fact that they're exercising editorial discretion, I think is, is an outrage. And I think, and we talk about in the book, this so-called section 230 of the communications decency act, which treats them as neutral platforms so that they can't get sued for their content. That's good. They should be, we should have neutral platforms, but they should act like neutral platforms. And if they're acting like publishers, they shouldn't be. And so at the moment, what's happening is that these platforms, these big kind of networks are being they're essentially getting regulatory benefits that they do not deserve. That's the easiest way to put it. So it's not a matter of the government going in and nationalizing them or making them utilities or even chopping them up. It's just that we should tell Twitter, look, if you want to be a platform, quit exercising editorial discretion. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to lose that privilege. And if they lose the privilege, then there'll be real competitors because right now they it's very difficult to compete with these massive networks because of the benefits of network effects as long as they have this regulatory cover. The second they lost that regulatory cover, you'd get 
upstarts that would want want to compete with them. And so I really, really think that's a, a very important uh, a policy response because the reality is they, they effectively control the information that people have access to. And I really think if it had not been, the media always has an incentive to kind of scare us and to terrify us because that draws attention and nobody wants right. to read stories about how everybody's just, yeah nobody wants like oh 330 million americans are still alive today mm-hmm. right that, that's a very boring news story um but social media has a way of amplifying it dramatically and making it much more direct and immediate um and so that, we think the reason we didn't we had nothing like this say in 2009 um uh, with the swine flu in part because the penetration of social media hadn't quite reached a critical mass. We think we've just, well, this is essentially the first pandemic with social media penetration. Uh, and that's why we think actually we're going to have to, we're going to have to train ourselves as individuals to consume social media in a more detached way, or they're just going to keep doing this to us. We need to be forceful too in calling this out when we see it. But as you're pointing out, Jay, mm-hmm. recognizing that, this is just simply not acceptable. Way too many people have responded to this. I've seen even on you know traditionally free speech um, you know sectors uh, or nonprofit areas of you know groups like Cato mm-hmm. Heritage Foundation, etc. Voices you would think would be very much for free speech kind of come out with these lame like you know well if you don't like how Twitter's doing it why don't you go build your own Twitter oh, uh, you know and it's completely like completely <laughs> misses the point yeah right. completely misses the point. <laughs> Right, exactly. It's we either have free speech or we don't. And I think, you know, being able to utilize yeah. this is important, especially as we look at life issues, right? Because while the pandemic is oh, certainly yeah. a life issue, if we are sitting here thinking that the precedent that now is set, that content can be flagged, uh, demonetized, hidden, deleted entirely, Absolutely. if it violates ever-changing so-called guidelines dictated by mm-hmm. God knows who in San Francisco or yeah. elsewhere— you think they're not coming after pro-life content? You know, we've already seen them come Absolutely. after Lila Rose in live action. Um, yeah. They're going to come after right. all of it because they're going to say, well, the consensus the of, of policymakers is that abortion's great. So that's the only permitted opinion. Yeah, of course. Then that's science is spoken. Yeah. So we're going to have to flag your content. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. Let's turn our heads to the future and, and next steps, um, you know, in terms of life affirming mm-hmm. responses to the virus as we move forward. Yes. I think based on what we've learned the, for the last, what is it, seven or eight months, we know a lot about the virus. Um, I, I'm inclined to be forgiving to officials in March and April when we didn't know what was happening. China wasn't giving us information. The World Health Organization was covering for China. Um, I, I think the, I, I trust people's instincts were to try to help people and to save lives. The problem is, is that by May or June, we understood that the infection fatality rate of COVID-19 was an order of magnitude or more lower than was originally estimated. We understood that the lockdowns had enormous costs. They didn't seem to be making any difference. And so the fact that we kept having these arguments rather than pivoting with new information, that to me is the outrage, that we did not update our policies uh, based upon actual data, on actual evidence. That's that's catastrophic because if public policy is not going to be, especially public health policy is not going to be based on the evidence, uh, what's it going to be based on? Um, it's the will to power effectively. And so I think at least the one thing that, or the two things we've learned is one, lockdowns don't help. They, they, they hurt. And two, elderly people with comorbidities uh, are, or, you know, basically if you're, you're sick and you're elderly, you're much, much 
uh, at higher risk of dying from this than if you're someone else. And so we need to focus our public health attention on that population. Eventually, it'll probably be with a vaccine. Uh, but for now, in terms of focus protection and making sure that we've got the, all the tools in our medical arsenal to respond to, to, to people that are in that situation. Um, and the good news is that the people that are most at risk are also the people least likely to be in the workforce and least likely to be in school. Right, and so this should it should be possible for us to come up with a public health response that actually does this, and that um, I, I'd say maximizes the benefits and minimizes the cost. Well, it's been so great to talk with you about this. I really appreciate your voice and speaking up on these issues. And uh, you know, I don't I don't mind following you, Jay, even if your content and your account is flagged from time to time. So happy, happy to do it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, something we do every show is our shot of gratitude, Jay. We just share something that we're grateful for. So, hmm. uh, Jay, what's something you're grateful for recently? You know, honestly, I'm thankful that um, my family has stayed well through this entire thing. Um, and I'll say something, you know, honestly, not only have we stayed well, I was sure I would probably catch uh, the COVID-19 at some point. Um, none of us have had that. And even though the lockdown has been terrible it, for a lot of people, I've actually had more time to spend with my family, with my mm. uh, my high school daughter who was here until recently instead of going into school and my college daughter who's been at home rather than in the apartment. Now, they don't like this. They resent the fact that I actually enjoy that fact. But the reality is I'm thankful for it. <laughs> I remind myself, okay, the lockdown is terrible and I wouldn't wish it on anyone else. But if, if anything, it was it's, in some ways it almost been a net gain because it's given me more time with our family. That's awesome. Yeah, it's always about what we're learning from the things we're going through, right? And part of the problem with the consensus yeah. narrative is it doesn't really encourage us to think or to learn. Uh, it just encourages us to react and parrot. Tom, what's something you're grateful for? I'm always interested to hear it because you're a guy who's full of gratitude. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, I think uh, like like Jay, grateful for a lot of the silver linings of this time. I know I've been doing some traveling uh, more recently, too, as the pandemic's gone on. And, uh, you know, got to visit uh, actually Anchorage recently, Alaska, checked off my 49th state which was pretty 49 awesome. 49 states. Wow, Todd, that's amazing. Do you have a map? Do you have a map somewhere that you color in? You know, I should I should keep a map. It's it's in my mind, but I don't I don't have a uh, a color by state yet, no. But, you know, one of the things I was encouraged by was, you know, when I got into Anchorage, you know, they made it a point they had a public health uh, system in place, and so you were able to do a COVID test there in the airport uh, as you're arriving, and they had this just as a policy, it's you know, the Alaska public health mandate. It's the first state I've seen that's really done that well. I think it's easy for Alaska because you have to pretty much fly in or out unless you're one of the very few people driving there. Um, I mean, you, you could probably take a team of sled dogs in from the Yukon or something. Which I'm not opposed to doing, of course. Yeah, maybe with next you time. Next time you're up there, that's how you'll travel. Yeah. Anyway, Noah, what's something you're grateful for? You know, Tom, in the great tradition of uh, being thankful for different weather events on the show <laughs> is... Uh, he here in St. Louis now, we're having a very warm November, so we're having like 60-degree days on the reg. Been playing a lot of tennis with my wife and friends, and uh, it's just it's been really nice after that whole spring and so, as part of summer of lockdowns just to be outside and uh, hanging out with neighbors and enjoying the day. That's beautiful, Noah. All right, well, Jay, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Good to be with you. Thank you, Jay. Mm-hmm. All right, if you enjoyed our show today, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you listen, rate the show and leave a review. Let a friend know you've discovered life, liberty, and law. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, just email us at life at aul.org. I am Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.